The following sermon was preached by guest preacher Brian Williams at Emmanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Brian Williams. All right. Thank you, Jamie, so much for that introduction. And um, thank you for the music. If I, if I had to try to select a group of songs that would go best with what I want to talk with you about today, there's no way I could have picked it better than that. It just really leads us into what we're going to look at today. It's been a few years since I've been with you. I, I don't remember the year. I'm terrible with dates, by the way. But a few years back, I was here and I got to be with you in the service, and I had a great time. I do want to say a word about your pastor, Steve Tillis. He's a good man uh, who, you know this, he loves the Lord, he believes every word of the Bible, and uh, he loves his wife, and uh, you have a good pastor, and I hope you'll encourage him and pray for him, because it's, it's a heavy burden that a pastor carries trying to lead a church to be the, the under-shepherd. So do pray for him and do encourage him. I know you are, but I just want to encourage you to keep doing that. Well, um, I know that Steve has just had a baby, and so has Jamie, so a lot to celebrate here for you as a church family, and then I know you're praying for your youth who are going up to Philadelphia, I think, today, and hopefully they'll have a great time at Infuge with your new youth pastor, and uh, so it sounds like a lot of good things happening in the life of Emmanuel Baptist Church. Well, if you would, um, take your Bibles and turn to the book of Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. And when you found that, just look up here. Wow, that was almost in unison. That's impressive. <laughs> Synchronized head nodding. Okay. All right, let's pray together if you found that. Our Father, we're so grateful to come together as Christians. As we've sung just a little while ago, our Father, we believe that You are holy. And because You are holy, there is no way in all the world that we could have ever approached You. We could have never gotten within 10 million miles of You. But Lord, because of Your great love for us, You have sent Your Son to bridge that chasm and to come down to us and to walk in our shoes to take our suffering upon Himself and to pay for the guilt that we should have paid for in His own body. Lord, we're so grateful to sing to You our great Redeemer who's come to rescue us and to take us to be back into a right relationship with You. And we pray today, Father, that You would give us help as we open up Your perfect Word the word that you've spoken out of your mouth, that you've given through prophet after prophet, it's all been put down for us. So much blood has been spilled throughout the centuries so that we can have a faithful copy of this, these words that you've spoken that not only tell us how to live, but more importantly, tell us who you are, who to live for. And we pray, God, that you would open our eyes and open our hearts today to be able to receive the treasures that you have for us today. I know that some in this room, Lord, come in discouraged, having had a tough week or month or maybe even year or a longer season than that, maybe. I pray today, Father, that you would be their encourager, that you would be the lifter of their heads, 
that you would lift up the light of your countenance upon them and give them peace and restore the song to their hearts. Others, Father, today are struggling with sin, with some maybe nagging sin that they've been fighting with, and they're maybe on the brink of giving up, wondering if there's ever any hope. God, I pray that you would give them strength today. You say that a righteous man falls down seven times, but he gets up. Help them to get up, Lord, who are struggling today with sin. Dust them off, Lord. Encourage them and give them strength to walk with you further down the road. God, others today are just in need of wisdom. Decisions need to be made. And we look to you today, God, to be our guide. You tell us if we delight ourselves in you, Lord, you'll give us the very desires of our heart. That is the very things we ought to desire. We pray that you would do that in the hearts of those who are needing wisdom and direction today for decisions. And for every other need, Father, you know each one intimately, and we know, Lord, and we trust, and we ask that you'll minister to each one. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I understand that you've been going through a New City Catechism as a church, and you're up to, this gets us to, I think, question 14 today. Pastor Steve asked me if I would cover this question and uh, so I looked through this resource that you're working through, and it's a, good, it's a very good resource from what I can tell. And uh, questions 7 up through 14 and maybe even 15 all deal with this issue of the law, the, the legal material that we find in the Bible, the do's and the do nots. And what do we do with that? And so today, the question that we have before us is this. It's question number 14. It's, did God create us unable to keep His law? Did God create us unable to keep His law? And even in the way that that question is, is phrased, if you think about it, you're, what we're really wondering is, have we been somehow cheated? You know, did, have we been put into a game that we couldn't possibly win? This is why I don't like to put quarters in those crane machines that come down when you're going out of a store, because if you've ever put, if you've put more than three quarters in those, you know what happens. They only come down with enough force to maybe pick up a Kleenex or something and take it out. Anything heavier than that, and it just slides right off. So it just takes your money. I guess maybe every hundred quarters or something, it clamps down. There's got to be something to that. But uh, you feel it when you put your quarter in and you get the thing right over the little bunny or the stuffed thing that you want, and it just does this. It goes... You feel like you've been cheated. You think, you know, there was no way for me to win that. And so with this question, has God created us unable to keep His law, we wonder, have we been put into one of those claw machine games to where there was no possible chance for us to come out ahead? Well, the answer that you find in your catechism there is this, and I'll just read it. And I agree with this, but I would add a word. I would actually add, I'm going to add a word to the end of it. The answer is no, He has not. But because of the disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, all of creation is fallen. We are all, therefore, born in sin and guilt, corrupt in our nature, and unable to keep God's law. And I just put the word perfectly. We can keep a piece here or there, perhaps, but we fall so short of keeping the whole law perfectly, do we not? And that goes for Christian or non-Christian. And so that's the answer that we give. Uh, what I want to do today, I want to work through this. I'm not going to tackle too much of this question as much as I'm going to 
kind of hit, I think, a more important issue related to it, okay? And I hope this will make sense to you as we go along. The title of my message today is this. If you're taking notes, Christ, our hope in light of God's law. Christ, our hope in light of God's law. And with that, I want to read uh, from chapter 5 of Paul's letter to the Romans. The verse that you're focusing on today in your catechism is chapter 5 and verse 12. But so we can get the context of what Paul's saying, I want to read the whole chapter, at least through verses 17. So look with me as we read this together. Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, now... It'd be great if we had all day to go back and give you in detail what the therefore points to, but we'll just go on. Therefore, since we have been justified by the law. Nope, you didn't read that either. Let's start again. Therefore, since we have been justified by, what's the word? Faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, that is Jesus, we have also obtained access. We've, we've gotten to go through a door that was previously locked to us. We have access by the law. Nope. By what? Faith. Into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by the law... Nope, I keep making that mistake... Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. And more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. That just means a restored relationship. Now let's go on to verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted, that is, there's nothing to no accounting to do where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. 
But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through the one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of grace by that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following the trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those receive will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So let's look at this issue of Christ, our hope, in light of God's law. We just have two points we're going to look at today, so let me give those to you out at the, at the beginning, and then we'll walk through them in detail. The first thing we're going to see is that we're going to see why Christ is our only hope for righteousness. I didn't say why Christ is one of three hopes or one of six options. Christ is our only hope for righteousness, and we're going to see why that is. I want you to see why. All right? Once we go through that, then we'll look at how Christ makes us better while keeping us humble and hopeful. He wants to do far more than just justify us. He wants to mold us and shape us to become different kinds of creatures than we ever have been before, long before we met Him. And as He does that, I want us to see how is it that He does that, and how is it that Christ, and I would say Christianity alone, can transform a person while keeping you free from pride, if you do well with that, and keeping you free from despair through the times where you struggle with that. So He can keep us humble and hopeful. So let's look through this together. Number one, why Christ is our only hope for righteousness. If you read the book of Romans up to this point, what Paul's been doing, you know, he's sending this letter out to Christians who live in Rome. He's not been there yet. He wants to go to these people and preach the gospel. Rome, a good way to think about it in the ancient world, if you took New York City and Washington, D.C. and put them together, that's Rome. It's the epicenter of culture. That's New York City. But it's also the political powerhouse of the culture. That's Washington, D.C. And all of the corruption that probably comes with that, you'd find it there too. And so this was Rome when Paul is living, and he's wanting to take the gospel there. But he begins to address this issue of the law when he starts to write to the Romans. And he's basically telling these people, look, it doesn't matter if you're Jewish and you have all of the law of Moses given to you, or whether you're a Gentile or a Greek and you don't have that, you're not familiar with it. At the end of the day, Paul says, we're all in the same boat. We've all come short of the standards that God would have for us as humanity. We are all His creation, and we've all botched it. And something needs to be done about this. And so Paul is going to make the case that, you know, the ground's kind of level here, friends. We're, we're all in this, in this same mess. We've broken his law. Whether we knew what it was through Moses as a Jew or whether we had an inkling of it in our hearts as a Gentile, we've all messed up. 
And so he comes into chapter 5, and he's going to begin to kind of unfold some of this. And I want us to see why Christ is our only hope of righteousness, given that we've botched it. Okay? Now, all religions of the world, it doesn't matter which one you look to. I've studied quite a number of them myself. When you look at all the religions of the world, they basically agree on this point. They all basically agree that humanity has gone wrong. Something has gone tragically wrong with humanity and with the world, and this needs to be set right. That's the religious impulse that you'll find in any religion you look to. Now, they, uh, they differ as to how things went wrong and what's exactly wrong with humanity and the world, and they differ with respect to how to make it right. But at least they're all on the same page with this sense of we've gone wrong and we have guilt. So when Paul comes to speak, whether it's to a Greek or to a Jew, he knows that they, they live with that sense of guilt, that I, I'm not right before God or the gods, however they thought of the divine. They all had that sense, and Paul's going to try to give clarity to this. Now, righteousness, if you're taking notes, that's a big word, uh, boys and girls. It just means being right with God regarding the moral law. Being right with God regarding the moral law. That's what righteousness means. Now again, Paul's audience, let's think of the Jews here. He, they had the sense of guilt. They knew they weren't right. But at this time when Paul's coming to preach, most of them were really trying to solve the problem by keeping a list of moral and mainly ritualistic laws in order to please God. And Paul's going to say to them, that'll never do it. You could do that as well as you possibly could do, and you'll still fall so short because that's not the right solution for the problem that you have. And then when you go to the Greeks, when you look at what's happening, if you were to go to Rome, you would have found various temples erected to the pagan deities, to the pagan gods. If you'd gone into one of those temples at a certain time of day, it would not have been uncommon to find sacrifices being offered to those various pagan gods. Now, why are they offering the sacrifices? For the same reason that the Jews try to keep the rituals. They're hoping to make themselves good enough for the gods. They're trying, they know they've gone wrong with respect to the divine, and they think they can right it by their own efforts. And so what Paul comes and he says, he says, whether you try it as a pagan or a Jew, if you miss Christ, you miss the whole thing, and you'll never be right before God. Our day's a little different today, though, the day that you and I live in. If you think about the world that we're in today, think with me about this and see if this doesn't look like it looks to you. People wrestle with guilt in our day, too. But they're told something different today. It's something that has... You, you could always find it in little tiny corridors here and there throughout history, but it was never a main view. This is becoming a main view of many people today. And here's sort of the view. People are told that the guilt itself is the problem. Not the legal guilt, but the feeling of guilt and shame. That that's what they need to get rid of. In the past, we were told that that feeling really points, that, points to us that something is really wrong. And we need to go find out the wrong and right it. 
Today, people are told, no, there's no wrong behind the guilt. The guilt itself is an illusion. What you need to have is a higher view of yourself. You just need to stop thinking such negative things about yourself, slug off all that old religious traditional morality that your parents and your grandparents and your great-grandparents shoved down your throat. That was all hogwash. You need to break those chains off, set yourself free, and just realize that you are a good, good person. You're just lacking. You're just not tapping into your full potential. So that's sort of this idea today that, that this feeling of guilt and shame is really what's holding people back and they need to get rid of not something real that they've done to make that right. They need to get rid of the guilt itself. Well, the problem with that, there's several things wrong with it, but those people who want to kind of shrug off all God talk and they still argue, those same people will still argue passionately that some things are right and some things are wrong. But when you begin to ask for the justification for the right and the wrong, how did you decide this was right and this was wrong, what you find out is there's nothing underneath it. It's like trying to build a building without laying a foundation. It won't go well for you. That sort of view has its feet firmly planted in midair. It's resting on nothing solid. There's no objective grounding to say what is right or what is wrong. And if you take God out of the picture, we'll forever be debating uh, what's really right and what's really wrong. And you know who wins in that? The loudest voice or the person with the most money or the most power who can oppress the other people around them. But we find that Christ tells us something very different from that. He tells us there is a real standard, that the guilt and the shame that humanity is wrestling with is not an illusion. It's pointing to something very, very real. Malcolm Muggeridge, how many of you have heard that name? Okay, yes, several, good. Malcolm Muggeridge, as you know, he was a journalist for the BBC. He was a non-believer most of his life, and he came to Christ later on in his life. And he wrote this, and I thought it was so perceptive. Muggeridge says, The depravity of man is at once the most empirically verifiable reality. That is, it's the most obvious thing you could possibly see. It's as plain as the nose on your face. But at the same time, Muggeridge says, it's the most intellectually resisted fact. Isn't that the case in the day in which we live? You just go, just go pull up when you get home today any news site and read the first three headlines and tell me if something is not terribly wrong with humanity. But we turn right back around and tell ourselves, nothing's wrong with me. It's all, it's the systems out there. It's the culture out there. It's that person who did that to me. Well, tell me, what is a culture if not a bunch of people who got together and did something? So if the culture's the problem, you can't even have culture without people. If I'm always blaming someone else, it was just that, that culture who did it. Well, who built that culture? I'm, I agree the culture may be twisted, but who twisted it? Culture doesn't twist culture. People twist culture. So the problem is with the heart. G.K. Chesterton, who was another great thinker, um, he was sort of C.S. Lewis's hero back in the day. G.K. Chesterton read an article that came out in some newspaper. They were talking about what was wrong with the world. G.K. Chesterton wrote the shortest letter perhaps it's ever been written back to an editor, and he just wrote this. He said, Dear Sir, regarding your article, What is Wrong with the World? I am sincerely G.K. Chesterton. In other words, what's gone wrong with the world, sir, is me. It's the heart. It's humanity. That sense of guilt points to something real. It's really there. 
But you know the people that deny the guilt and they say it's really an illusion. Do you know what I found in talking? When you really get to know people like that, even those people, they cannot slug off the haunting specter of guilt. They can't get rid of it. I just started a new uh, job three weeks ago, and they've put us through three weeks of pretty intensive training for uh, this organization. And uh, there are 11 of us in this training group going through this thing. And we're with each other for eight, nine hours a day. And there was one guy, we had to go around and say what, what our careers are and what we've done. And so when it comes to me, you know, I'm in, I'm in this group, I say, you know, I was pastoring a church, and I've been teaching philosophy at the seminary in Wake Forest. Well, as soon as they hear pastor, that's sort of, you know, you become a dartboard thing. And uh, so anyway, um, some of the guys in the, in the group were uh, very happy to tell me they were atheists. And so we started to have some conversations and we had some great conversations. And this one guy, I've really been praying for him, just praying that God would give him a tender heart, trying to love him and take an interest in his life uh, and really see what makes him tick. So I know where the inroad might be to him. And I've just been uh, praying and sharing. My wife Jennifer's been praying for him. This is week uh, two. At the end of week two, I think it is, we're on a break together, and he comes up to me, and he says, Brian, you know what, man? He goes, I don't know how you do it. He says, I, I live with guilt every day of my life. This is almost word for word, word what this atheist says to me. He says, I live with guilt almost every minute of every day of my life, man, and I'm so sick of it. And I thought, that's a, that's a problem. But how great that he would admit that. And I want to help him see that that guilt is something that's there for a reason, and it'll point him in a good direction if he'll listen. Well, why is it that Christ is our only hope of being made righteous? Why is he the only one that can really sponge away the guilt? You know, even if you could write things with people, even if you could say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go fix all the relational issues in my life. I'm having difficulty with this friendship or that, and I'm going to go write all of that and do what I can. Even if you could do that, and it's probably never been done before, but even if you could do that, you'd still live with a sense of guilt and shame that something was not right. And we know why that is. Do you remember when the lawyer, I think it is, comes to Jesus and asks him, Teacher, what is the great commandment? Talk about God's grace. He asks for one thing, he gets two. Jesus says... Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But then he says something else, doesn't he? He goes on. He says, and the second is like it. What does he say? Love your neighbor as yourself, right? So Jesus is, is saying that there's a, there is a vertical dimension to who you are, to what I've created you to be. That is a dimension that you can't ignore. You must be right before God. But that's not the only dimension. There is the horizontal. I've not made you to be isolated monks. I've made you to live in community together. So, but he puts them in the right order, doesn't he? I'm not much good to my neighbor if my heart is corrupt before my Creator. Have you ever been on an airplane before and they say, I, and when I, before I understood this, I thought, they're encouraging selfishness. Why is this? The flight attendant would come and say, in the instance of cab loss of cabin pressure, put your own mask on first. And you're going, so we're all a bunch of selfish jerks now? Why would you do that? But it actually makes sense. The point is, if you don't have oxygen flowing to you, you might be trying to strap that mask around your neighbor's knee. You won't be any help to them because you, you lose your sensibility. 
So the idea is get the oxygen flowing to you first, then you might be some good to help your neighbor. This is why Jesus gives us the vertical before the horizontal. If you really want to do good for the world, if you really want to be a good neighbor and do good to the people around you, the best thing you can do is get your heart right before God. To get your heart and let Him mold your desires toward not toward what you might feel is good, not toward what the media tells you you ought to do, but toward what God says, because that's unchanging. God is not going to change His mind because we find His, his mindset unpopular. He says it once and for all, and, and that stands. And when we align ourselves with Him, then we actually can be some good to our neighbor. And so He puts it in that order. But now, what we're talking about is Christ our only hope of being made righteous. Now, why not self-effort or some other way? Why can't we just white-knuckle it and pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and do it that way? Well, we can't because our sin, that is our moral guilt, it does some things to us that we can't fix. There's some effects there. Number one, it puts a chasm between us and God that we can't cross. If we try to cross that chasm without going through Christ, we plummet to our deaths. Every person who's ever tried it has missed it. Worse than this, our sin has also so infected our hearts that we would never figure out how to cross that chasm or where to cross it at unless someone were to come and tell us. We'd never get it right. Still worse, our sin has killed us spiritually and it's slowly killing us physically. Is it not? And none of us has a solution to reverse this. Now, we're pretty impressive as human beings in the century that we live in. We can put a man on the moon, but we cannot bring a man up out of the grave, can we? We can't fix this great sin and death problem that's the greatest problem that any of us faces. Only Christ can do that. And our story as Christians, brothers and sisters, is this. God has come to fix all of this for us. This is the great miracle of miracles that God Himself has broken into history. He hasn't just spoken from out there somewhere. He's wrapped Himself in human flesh and stepped down into the mess and walked in it. And He lived the life that we all should have lived, but have failed miserably to live it. And He has gone to the cross to take the real legal guilt. This is not a fiction this is a very real thing, as real as the pew you're sitting in. He's taken that real guilt on his body and paid for it in your place and in mine as a substitute so that we could be set free. And when he does that, whenever someone recognizes that and they realize that he alone has done for me what I could never do for myself, and I beg him by faith, Lord, forgive me, save me, I need what you've done for me to count for me. He makes us righteous. He gives us righteousness that we could never, ever get on our own. Now, the God-man, Jesus Christ, He's not just one of the many religious options. You have many religious options, that's true, but He's not just one of them. He is the very source of your and my life and existence. Listen, there would be no world to exist in no world to practice religion in were it not for Jesus Christ creating it and upholding it every moment by the word of His power. 
He is not just a religious teacher. He's the Lord of life and the God of all of creation. And it's the Lord of life Himself that we have to go to if we're going to be made right, if we're going to have life restored back to us. He can give it to us, by the way, legally, because He legally won it back. He could have just... I know some people say, why doesn't He just turn His head and say, I'll forgive that? He can't do that. That would be unjust. Jesus knows that our sin was brought into the human race because a human opened the door and let it in. Adam and Eve were the first, and we would have done no better. God put a good representative there for us, the best he had. We would have done the same. But the doors opened up and sin comes in. And only Christ can come and get it out for us. Christ alone can make us righteous because he, the second Adam, comes and lives the perfect human life and dies in our place, again, rightly representing all of humanity who will come to Him and be made righteous. All right, second and quickly, we'll close with this. How Christ can make us better while keeping us humble and hopeful. Okay, how He can make us better while keeping us humble and hopeful. He doesn't want to just get you into heaven. Somebody has said Christianity is really not so much about getting a human into heaven as it is getting heaven into the human. He wants to make you different moment by moment, day by day. He wants to mold you and transform you into something far more wonderful than you could ever imagine. And so as the Lord chisels away at us, you know, I mean, when He finds us, He finds a dirty piece of clay, if you like. When He gives us righteousness, He cleans the clay. But He's not done He's just getting started. For the next however long you live on this earth, He will be molding and shaping and chiseling, cutting here, twisting there, to make you into the perfect image of His Son so that we're walking around, like C.S. Lewis said, as little Christs. The world needs to see Christ, and they will see Him to the degree that we're made in His image. If we'll submit to what He wants to do. Now, here's the great point about this, but as God is doing that, as He's doing that, have you had some bad days in that process? Have you had some days when you resisted that chiseling? God wanted to mold here and you said, nope, not today. God wanted to scrape off and chisel here and you said, nope, I like it the way it is. Of course we have. God, we're stubborn children at times, right? God, we are children, praise God, but we're stubborn sometimes. But even in our worst days... We don't have to despair because the grace that we stand in, Paul says it this way. He speaks of, in verse 2 here, the grace in which we stand, it keeps us safe and secure even in our worst days. So you don't have to despair. But also you won't become prideful. You're free from pride. Now listen, if it weren't Christ in you coming to do this, see Christ sets you free, But he also comes, Paul tells us, if you look in verse 5, look here. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. The Christian is is a literal temple walking around with the Holy Spirit indwelling. That's what it means to be a Christian. That you have God himself, his life in you, working from the inside out, not the outside in. This is not just behavior modification. This is from the inside out. And when God does that, you realize the better and better that I do become, the more that I do love His law, and I want to keep it. I do. We love the moral law. We don't slug it off when we we become Christians. We just realize that 
Yes, I love it. I want to keep it. But on my worst day, he keeps me safe and secure. But I want to please him. I want to follow in his steps. And listen, and the better and better that he makes us, the more we realize this clay is looking a little more like Christ. Praise God. We don't get prideful because we know we didn't do it ourselves. We're humble because we say, I'd never be made, I'd never be the man I am or the woman I am without Christ. And so we have humility. We're kind of like Frodo at the foot of Mount Doom. If you've seen The Lord of the Rings or you've read the books or you've you've seen the movie, at the very end of the story, there's Frodo, the ring of power, the wicked ring of power that belongs to Lord Sauron. It has to be taken back up into the mountain, thrown into the lava and destroyed in order for evil to be defeated. But Frodo finds himself at the foot of that mountain at the end of the story, exhausted, worn out, and on the brink of death, and he can't take another step. But who's there with him? Samwise. Samwise the good is right next to Frodo. And Sam says one of the most moving lines to me. He says, Mr. Frodo, I can't carry the ring, but I can carry you. And he carries him up that mountain, and he does for him what he never had the power in and of himself to do, and evil is defeated in the end. That is Christ for us. He is the Samwise who comes to us Frodo's and he says, you're too weak. You'd never make it without me, but I've come to give you help and to give you hope. I'll close with uh, one thought here and then an illustration. You know, the real trick of all this is of growing in, in Christ, growing as Christians. Here's a real trick, and I wish I'd learned this years ago. When we talk about humility, a lot of people think that it means thinking really low thoughts of yourself. It actually doesn't mean that at all, because God doesn't think low thoughts of you. He doesn't think low thoughts of His own image in which you're made. Humility is really just thinking of yourself less often. That's why Tim Keller calls it self-forgetfulness. He literally defines humility, self-forgetfulness. When you take a picture of something, and uh, think with me, if something's in the foreground of that picture and you focus on it, what happens to everything else on the periphery? It goes fuzzy. The trick of the Christian life, if God, Christ is going to make us better without us becoming prideful and when we do good and without us falling into despair when we struggle, is to keep Christ in focus in your heart and in your mind. Don't see self too much. In fact, when you sin, C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said, you know, guilt is there, conviction from the Holy Spirit, so that you'll take a quick glance at your sin, repent of it, and get your eyes right back on Christ. Don't linger long looking at yourself, whether you did good or whether you did bad. Think about it, evaluate it, find, pray about it, and get your eyes right back on Christ. Focus on Him. Let Him be in focus. Humble self-forgetfulness. That's the way to grow as a Christian. Now, I close with this. Again, we were talking at the beginning about this idea. Has God created us so that we could not keep His law? No, He hasn't. But the reality is, if if anyone wants to play the game of trying to keep His law and getting it done themselves, it will be a terrible, terribly failed project. The more important issue is, how can I be made right in light of it? And how can I progress with Christ down the road without becoming humble, on the, without becoming prideful on the one hand, or falling into despair on the other? And I thought this past semester, my students and I, we had to, at the seminary, we had to read the book Frankenstein by Mary Shelley. It's, a, it's actually a great book. 
And uh, everybody thinks Frankenstein is the monster. He's not. Victor Frankenstein is the scientist who creates the monster. And in this story, Victor Frankenstein, he's, a, he's an obsessive scientist who goes away and he works for days and days and weeks and months on this creature that he's trying to make. He's trying to make a human being in his own strength and with the aid of science. And he finally completes it. And when, the, when his creation comes to life and it opens up its eyes, Victor Frankenstein is shocked and he's horrified at what he sees. It's not a beautiful creation that he's made. It's ghastly. And he shrieks and he runs away. And then he's wondering, how could I destroy this thing? He starts to feel guilt that I should have never made this thing. I probably should destroy it. But he's so uh, grossed out by it. He just runs away the whole book from it. So the create now follow this. The creator of the creature in this story creates a ghastly creature. It wasn't the creature's fault that he was ugly. It was the creator's fault. And rather than helping the creature, the creator flees, wants nothing to do with him. And at the end of the book, the creature finally tracks down his creator and he says these words. He's angry. He's murdered people trying to get back at his creator and hurt him. And the monster says... I am malicious because I am miserable. I, am I not shunned and hated by all mankind? You, my Creator, would tear me to pieces and triumph. Remember that and tell me why I should pity man more than he pities me. You would not call it murder if you could precipitate me into one of those ice rifts and destroy my frame, the work of your own hands. Should I respect man when he condemns me? I will revenge my injuries. If I cannot inspire love, I will cause fear. And chiefly towards you, my arch enemy, because my creator do I swear inextinguishable hatred. Have a care. I will work at your destruction, the monster says. Nor finish until I desolate your heart so that you shall curse the very hour of your birth." And the monster's actually got a point here when you read the story. All the wrong that was done to him was because he was made wretched and evil and wicked and ghastly. And his creator wants nothing to do with him. When I thought about that, I thought you could not possibly find a more fitting antithesis to the Christian story than this. Our creator creates us not ghastly, not monsters. He creates us beautiful. And the wrong that is done in our lives, the, the, the corruption that comes, we bring it on ourselves. And even then, our Creator doesn't run away from us. He runs to us. He runs after us on a rescue mission. This is the beauty of the Gospel. God sees people who have made themselves ghastly, and He loves us in spite of it, and He comes after us, and He wants to save us, and He wants to make us more like Himself. That's the great truth today. Well, Christians, I hope you'll leave today encouraged that Christ is working in you. He has rescued you already. You didn't rescue yourself. He came and rescued you because He loved you that much. And He is not going to stop working and molding and chiseling away. You might want Him to leave you alone on some days. He will not do it. He loves you too much. But take courage and take comfort. Even in the most difficult times, you are standing in His grace. He will always keep you there. And at the end of it all, He will finish the work He's begun.
And he'll make you just the person he wants to make you. Let's pray. Our Father, how grateful we are today to be your children. Not a one of us was born into your family by a natural birth. We've all come in through adoption. You've all found us, Lord, like orphans. And to be honest, Father, we wanted nothing to do with your family until you first began to work in our hearts and to woo us and to seek after us and to convince us that you were coming after us not to harm us, but to heal us. And Lord, I pray that you would encourage your church today that you have so much more in store than you've already done. You're going to continue to work, to continue to mold and chisel, making us into the wonderful creatures that you want to make us into. And one day, Lord, we know that the image that we're being made into, though we see in a glass darkly now, one day we will see face to face. We will look into the eyes of our Redeemer. And all these songs that we've been singing, Lord, while we've been waiting for you to come, one day we'll get to sing them before your face and before your throne. God, help us to be faithful until that day and use this church for your glory and your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, please visit us at ebcraleigh.com.